I thought that I needed to be at the restaurant all the time um, and that that's why I was there 100 hours a week. But I wasn't actually doing anyone any favours by being there all that time because you can't sustain yourself, you know. How can you come up with new menu ideas when you're just mentally and physically fatigued? And be a leader. We need to lead by example. By me showing my cooks that I was willing to do 100 hours a week actually isn't leading by a good example. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Before the pandemic, it was easy to get caught up in the everyday of life. So much so, we often forgot what's important and how to have a real positive impact. Not just on our own lives, but those around us and the planet too. As tragic as the circumstances have been, the pandemic has given many the chance to breathe, take stock, and not only consider what's important, but steer their lives towards that too. Frankie Cox is currently working at Black Barn Farm in Victoria. Frankie, how are you going? Good. Huck, how are you? I'm good. You've just been in the fields with uh, school kids, I understand, this morning. Can you tell us what you've been doing? Yeah, so... um the, it's their second week here this week. They come one day a week um, and it's about a five-week program. So we're kind of showing them what um, regenerative farming means from um, a foundational point of view. So today we've had them out in the field planting mountain pepper. Um, so the soil has actually been prepped um has been being prepped for the last four years so it's finally ready to be planted in and um, so we just show the kids what the process is now to actually get the plant in the ground Um, and then um, compost on top of the plant then we use um, cardboard that otherwise would have ended up in landfill and then mulch on top of that again so you kind of have protection for about 12 months um, for the plant so yeah so it's um I mean I'm learning so much too I'm loving that the kids are here doing this program because I've definitely got my ears burning whilst it's all going ahead. Well you've done so many extraordinary things in food and um, did you ever expect to be where you are just at this moment? Um maybe maybe I think I did because I think it's an evolution you know like I I always from where I started, I was actually always looking back in terms of, you know, with an end product of food, how did it get there? So um, I think from, you know, the first few years, it was always the prep. But for me now, it's about the the produce and the soil that it was grown in and, and how it was grown. So I, yeah, I think that um, maybe it wasn't right in front of me of ending up here, but I think it's um, probably a natural progression in where my um, my mindset and focus has been throughout my journey. Well, let's take a couple of steps back because there's a reason why you're at the farm at the moment and when the pandemic landed, you were working with Qantas. Can you tell us about that gig and, and what happened as a result of the pandemic? So I was working for Qantas Wine as um, a gourmet food buyer. So it was for their online marketplace. Um, that was uh, selling food and wine from um, wine regions all over Australia. So my role was to source artisanal goods that would complement um, the wine on the site and its re- and its regions. Um, so things like um, olive oils, olives, um, 
uh, truffles, different salts, um, and and so on and so forth. And so it was all about smaller producers and giving them exposure on a greater platform, um, which was um, very enticing to me. And so I was there for just shy of 12 months. Um, and I guess also it was good because I do have a commerce degree, so it's probably nice to flex that a little bit from the kitchen. <laughs> um, and, yeah, then the pandemic hit. And I probably actually thought that my job was safe because we were a revenue stream for Qantas. You know, it wasn't to do with the food on the planes. Um, and sales immediately went through the roof with panic buying. Uh, so, um, but I mean, yeah, just, <laughs> I don't know, not many jobs were safe with Qantas. So, um, yep. So that got done and dusted. And, um, how did you feel at that time? Um, it may, it was confronting because it made the pandemic real. I hadn't really considered, um, the consequences of the pandemic just yet. And I was in a pretty safe little bubble down at my parents' place in Point Monsell um, and felt, you know, safe from the disease but not the repercussions of it. Um, so, yeah, that was like the first kind of triggering point that, oh, shit, you know, this is a really big global mess. <laughs> um yeah, so I think it took me a little bit to regroup and just think, okay, like how long is this going to go on for and, you know, am I going to go back to that job? Is that going to be on offer um, and what will that turnaround be? Uh, and so, yeah, had a few weeks to, to think about the situation and assess what was happening and um, was chatting to another friend who also lost their job in hospitality. They were front of house. Um, and I said, I, you know, I've just been thinking about how different people are affected in this pandemic and all kids are remote learning now. They've all gone back home. Parents are all working from home and it must just be chaos. I feel like kids would be asking their parents all day, you know, when's lunch? When's my next snack? Um, and so I thought maybe one thing I could do not only to entertain myself, but to, um, help other people out is to create, um, a tuck shop offering that is delivered to your door. Wow. Yes. So, Amazing. yeah. And I thought again, you know, a lot of producers had lost their business, so it was a good way to use the surplus that was on the market, um, and to have a bit of fun with it too. I've got um, a business in the pipeline and obviously, you know, um, I'm going to be putting a lot of pressure on myself for that to succeed. But this was kind of like a nice little interim that you could play around with it a little bit, um, see, you know, how the market reacts um, and, and learn things along the way and be able to have that lightness and, and have a bit of fun with it. What were the challenges in, in doing that and has it scared you off tuck shops forever? <laughs> um. Yes, there was there was an opportunity to go into a school. We started getting approached by quite a few schools to take over their tuck shop programs. And while it interested me, especially with schools that had veggie gardens, I thought that that was a really cool educational program that could then be transferred into the food that the um, tuck shop produces. It's quite daunting um all the different dietary and allergies that are in schools and I didn't want to really um have to take on the risk of that and 
kids that are the fussiest critics. <laughs> so, you know, and it's there's a, such a fine line of pleasing the child and pleasing the parent. Um, you know, they want their kids to be having nutritious food at school, um, but what do the kids want? And if they're going to go home and say, oh, I didn't like my lunch, um, you know, then what do the parents say in turn to that? So it was a really um, great opportunity and it was something fun to do. But I think for now that's where my time in tuck shops ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, you still have the connection with our kids as we sort of discussed at the top of the show. Uh, how did the, the gig at the farm start and and has it changed you working on that farm a bit? Um, so... I was kind of looking at what my second half of the year looked like um, and I have kind of found that I had cornered myself into an area where I wasn't really learning that much anymore. In the last few years I was kind of the one that people were coming to for advice. Um, so I, I was stuck. So I thought, you know, um, it's a great opportunity this year to really le learn some new skills. Um, so I had already looked up woofing. I'd actually listened to Jade's podcast, um, which is called Future Steading. I'd been listening to that and they were chatting about woofing and I thought, you know what, this sounds great. It's um, There's no pressure on it. It's quite mindless. No one's going to be coming to me um, and asking me all the questions. I can go and learn from others and be out, outside. And I think that's where um, I've really had an, an, a yearning to be is to connect myself with the ground and its soil. Um, so I actually had been looking up a few different places to go um, woofing in New South Wales, but I couldn't really find any farms that were tickling my fancy. A lot of them um, you have to sort through and some just kind of want you to clean the house and look after their children. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's not really quite the experience I'm looking for. And then lockdown two happened, so I just thought woofing wasn't um, an option. And a couple of weeks ago, um, Jade posted on the Black Barn Farm Instagram that their woofer had to pull out and um, is anyone interested? And I thought, oh, yes, this is my chance. Um, and I had a little bit of time up my sleeve. I've got a project I've got to get back to in Geelong, but um, I thought I can at least go and do a few weeks there now. And so um, replied and Jade got back immediately and we had a chat and she was like, great, can you come next week? So um, all happened really quickly. Yeah, and it's in this beautiful pocket in Stanley next to Beechworth and they've got 20 acres and it's just such um, a manageable operation. And I think I had really only been exposed to huge farms um, and or, you know, a backyard kitchen garden. So it's, it's really quite nice to see... Um, the operation at this size and what you can achieve and um, I guess it's kind of it's a good taste into regenerative agriculture because it is manageable you know um, and I think in this field um, or with this tendency that that people are now starting to focus on it's easier to to start a little bit smaller than biting off more than you can chew. And it's also not, you know, it, the whole point is that it's an accessible practice that people should be able to do in their backyard or, you know, at a farm that's a little bit larger in size. 
Well, the farm that you're at is a world away from New York, but you've spent a lot of time in New York. What's been the fascination there? And I know you're involved heavily with Two Hands. Can you tell us about the your time over in New York? Yeah, so I went when I was 13 for, I think, not even a week, a few days. Um, and all I remember from that trip is going to Mickey Manus's diner and having waffle fries. So <laughs> it probably wasn't ignited then. Um, but then I had this idea to go um, when I was 21. I went with a few uh, friends and we were all kind of going for different things. Some were looking at doing internships and, and so I looked up the Institute of Culinary Education and we were there for two months. So I did two courses, um, one in kind of just like 101 and then the other one was in pastry and I quickly learned that my hands are far too hot to pursue a career in pastry. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Well, also I just, I'm not really, uh, I don't enjoy measuring things out so I kind of put that one to bed um, and thought, you know, stick with savoury where I can have the freedom to play around a bit more. Um, so I had the two months there and I did um, a stage with um, Silkstone, which was the event group of the Fat Radish, which is sadly recently closed. Um, and that was eye-opening. It was just the events that we were doing. I'd never seen anything like it. The scale and and the food that they were producing was really cool too. So I left with one thing in mind was that I was going to, go back there. Um, so I had to come back to Australia to finish my degree. Uh, so I finally ticked that off the list, uh, which wasn't the easiest thing to get through when my mind was on chefing the whole time. Um, <laughs> so I got that done. And then as soon as I finished, the thing was my, <laughs> my parents, um, they encouraged me to get the degree, which I'm very grateful for now. Um, but the only reason that I could go to New York was because I had the degree because you need a, um, a degree to get the visa. So um, that was a true blessing in disguise of <laughs> um, achieving the commerce degree. So yeah, as soon as I finished, I applied for the J1, which is a 12-month working visa where you're completely independent. So you're not dependent on a employee in on an employer. So I went um, and I worked at two different restaurants, six months in each. Um, and then I thought my time wasn't really done in New York, but I couldn't get another visa. Um, and so I came back to Australia with the intentions of going to the UK. Uh, and then so I got all the visa to do that and three weeks out from moving to London, I got a call from the guys that own Two Hands where I'd been a daily customer um, whilst I was living in New York and I would kind of sit there and I was watching the way that they would do things and, you know, it, the, the cafe was very organic in how it progressed and that when they opened it they only had a coffee machine and they thought oh shit we better get some pastries and then you know a week later oh if we got a toaster we could do avocado toast and um and so on so I would watch them they were smashing the avocado to order for every toast and I thought guys you've got to start prepping this um and then you know so I went back there to show them how to prep and I was like these knives how are you even cutting anything with them so then I'd show them how to sharpen knives so we kind of had already established um a relationship in hospitality um and then you know we started chatting about where I was working and whatnot so yeah so they called me up and they said we're um we've just signed a lease in Tribeca and we want to do a restaurant breakfast lunch and dinner and we want you to be the chef 
And I thought, shit, I'm moving to London in three weeks, um, but I'm also 25 and I, I'm very young and I had, you know, a plan of how much I wanted to learn. But I also thought, you know, I don't want to say no to this opportunity. I want to go and, and see how it goes. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine. I can go to London. I've got a two-year visa there. Um, so redirected my flights and ended up in New York um, and I guess kind of, yeah, hit the ground running. I think I it was good because I understood the environment. I already knew how New York kitchens operated and I had been exposed to um, suppliers and things like that from the restaurants that I'd worked in. And and then also the commerce degree again came in handy because I knew how to um, manage a business and I also had learned how to manage people through that too. Um, so it took us a lot longer than expected to get the restaurant off the ground, about nine months in the end. Um, and as soon as the doors were open, there were lines around the block. <laughs> so it didn't really give us much um, uh breathing space and to fine tune things for teething. Um, but it all, you know, there's pros and cons of that too. We just put our heads down and, and yeah, just, and just pushed. So that was breakfast, lunch and dinner, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. And I was basically there for every service. So you can, you can do the math at how many hours were in my working week. (laughs) That is a, a lot of uh, a lot of work. Did did that take a toll on you? Um, I didn't think it did at the time. I I physically felt good, other than a few months in, I had I knew that my ear was bothering me, um, and it wasn't until we needed to fly to Austin to go and look at a space, um, and I thought, oh, I better get my ear checked out before we go. And I went down to see a specialist, and they did a hearing test, and I thought, yep, whatever. Um, went into his room afterwards, and he was like, yeah, okay, so you've lost hearing in your left ear. And I burst into tears, and I was like, no, what do you mean? Um, and he was like, no, that's fine. Uh, you know, if you, if you treat it within a month, um, it's, you can fix it. And, and he said, how long have you had this one? I said, um, three to four months. Um, so that was probably the first sign that my body wasn't enjoying it. Um, but then since I got back to Australia, I could just feel my body slowly depleting and, um, it basically saying, fuck you for doing what you did to me for all those years. I probably worked seven days a week for almost two and a half years between um, the restaurant and private chefing. So it's, I mean, it kind of had to happen, didn't it? (laughs) Um, And then so at the start of the year I had been at um, the Elton John concert in Hanging Rock and I woke up the next morning and my feet felt kind of funny. Like I couldn't really um, explain it. And then uh, a few hours into the day, then my hands started feeling funny and they kind of felt burnt Um, and that, you know, they were really sensitive and I had pins and needles in them. And my feet got progressively worse and by the time I woke up the next day, I couldn't walk. So that was slightly terrifying and I felt really weak. And that was Australia Day, so I got rushed to emergency and within, you know, three questions of the emergency doctor um, asking me about symptoms, they thought that I either had early um, detection of MS or Guillain-Barre. 
So a week later, I'm still in hospital and they've done all the tests. They've stuffed up the lumbar puncture. So my spinal fluid is leaking and my brain is sagging every time I sit up. Wow. Um, and then I had another procedure called a blood patch um, to cause a clog so that the spinal fluid wouldn't leak. And then um, I felt probably fine about after a month or so. I couldn't walk for uh, about two weeks, so I had to kind of um, get back on track walking a couple steps a day from that. And then, yeah, then I felt fine and started tuck shop. And then um, within a few weeks of tuck shop, my body said, nah, this isn't happening again. You can't you can't throw yourself into the deep end with these long days on your feet. And I had another relapse and I just couldn't get out of bed. I had shocking headaches and I just felt fatigue to my core. Um, so now I, by that stage, I thought, okay, I better actually do a little bit of research into autoimmune diseases. Um, and as soon as I started doing that, everything made sense. All the symptoms added up. Um, you know, every day you wake up, you just feel like you're hungover times 10, times 10. Um, and you don't, it's, it's hard because, you know, especially I'm the kind of person who likes to go a million miles an hour, it really slows you down and there's nothing you can do about it. So I've had to learn a new way of living um, and through that as well um, is diet. And I have always eaten quite a wholesome diet because I do, um, you know, put so much into knowing where my food comes from and and eating wholesome, unadulterated food, not, no, not really anything processed in my diet. But I went and saw a naturopath and um, it was quite amazing to really understand the power of food and, and nutrition. And I think it fitted in quite nicely with COVID um, and really I think that everyone has had to reconsider their relationship with food um, in that, uh, you know, we all have to be um, pretty watchful of our immune system at the moment and the, the easiest way for us to do that all being cooped up in our homes is through our diet. Um, so I kind of felt like I'm all in the, I'm in the same boat as everyone but um, on another level, I guess. Um, so, yeah, the power of food has um, become really important to me um, on another level and so that's kind of also what um, led me to be at the farm um, and to be on this regenerative journey, not only through farming, but through my body too. And it's, it's quite amazing cycle. You know, if we generate ourselves, regenerate ourselves, that in turn is also regenerating the land. And when we're regenerating the land and consuming um, food from regenerative farms, that's regenerating ourselves. So I'm on the cycle now and I hope that I don't fall off. <laughs> um, but I think it's probably a good red flag to our industry um, and that it's actually not beneficial to flog ourselves the way that the, the way that the industry can set up to do so easily. Um, and, you know, I thought that I needed to be at the restaurant all the time um, and that that's why I was there 100 hours a week. But I wasn't actually doing anyone any favours by being there all that time because you can't 
sustain yourself, you know. How can you come up with new menu ideas when you're just mentally and physically fatigued? Um, and and be a leader, you know, when you're the executive chef, you're responsible for everyone in your team. Um, so, and I think it, we need to lead by example. So me, by me showing my cooks that I was willing to do 100 hours a week actually isn't leading by a good example. Um, so I think, yeah, in the future, um, I'll show you how, well, I'll understand more how to sustain myself in that role and in turn how to sustain the other people around me. As you mentioned, you've always had a really strong connection with food, which um, stood you in good stead given the syndrome and the circumstances that you've been dealing with this year. Uh, where did where did your passion for food all start? Uh, well, my mom's going to kill me for saying this again. She said, if you tell any more publications about my meat and three veg, <laughs> <laughs> but it all started with mom's meat and three veg. Um, and so, uh, my mom's side of the family have an abattoir in Kyneton called Hardwick's. So we've always had access to a lot of meat and very good meat at that. Um, so we essentially were having red meat for dinner seven nights a week and with uh, raw carrots, some microwaved peas and a couple of potato gems. And um, so I never very really – Very Australian. Very Australian, yeah. I had already started enjoying the food that we were eating when we were out um, and I noticed how very different that was to the food that was on our plate at home. Um, but I think it was then – having meals at friends' houses and seeing the food that was on their plates and their tables and thinking, oh, you know, it's at so many different levels of, um, you know, personal or professional, uh, food can be so different and it can be so satisfying. And so, you know, then I thought, well, I want to be able to produce that food first at home and then the idea grew that I would do that for a profession. So I, mum still has the cutout actually of the first recipe that I cooked. It was in like the Woman's Weekly. It was a stir fry and it was for kids. It said, you know, make sure mummy helps you with the sharp knife. Um, and it was loaded with oyster sauce and soy sauce and sweet chilli sauce. Um, uh, but very delicious compared to the other <laughs> food that was hitting our plates. And so, yeah, that kind of just that was the beginning of everything. And from there, um, just, you know, kept going one foot in front of the other to keep learning more about food and recipes and, and flavor profiles. And mum will tell me too, that, um, we used to go to Loam, um, just outside of Point Lonsal and, you know, there'd be quite intricate dishes and I could sit there and tell you every ingredient that was in it. So I did have that, understanding of ingredients um and then from there I understood you know how they worked with one another um and yeah I kind of said right well that means I'm going to be a chef um and so got to the end of school and um, mum and dad said you can do anything you like as long as you have a degree and then, yeah, ended up doing commerce. I started a catering business whilst I was doing the commerce just so I could be stimulated um, with something a little bit more interesting than dry accounting and economics. Um, and, yeah, kind of I guess I learned how to scale things through the catering business. I did that for five years 
um, and then was going in and out of different restaurants doing stages. Movida probably um, was quite pivotal for me. I was always, they're good friends of ours, and I was always in the kitchen anytime we would go and dine there. And then um, they very graciously let me go and hack a few things in the kitchen um, for a few weeks at a time whilst I was still getting my degree done. So, yeah, I think it's just, I guess that brings us full cycle now. We've gone from the start to the end. Um, And I think probably, you know, there's been highs and lows and, um, and exhaustion and thrilling um, and energy and I think, um, you know, I did. that's what I went to New York for was for that energy. You know, as soon as I went there when I was 21, I felt that pulse and I wanted to be a part of it but um, that's not sustainable. So after five and a half years, I needed to think about what my next step was with, it, with food and what that meant and I think, you know, I was – pushing the the later years of my 20s and so I was feeling like I was about to become a grown-up um and so I thought I've had my fun um and now I need to start thinking about what I want my impact to be and I was struggling to see that in New York because I couldn't feel that grounded and create long-term impact um because I knew that I would eventually come home so as soon as I kind of had um decided on that I was ready to come home and really ground myself um to set up a a short-term and I guess a long-term plan of how I can give back to the community um and and the earth which is now becoming quite a big thing for me um and so I and just observe too you know like I said before I had been in the position of not really learning that much anymore sure I was learning from you know the people around me but I I just wanted to be able to sit back and observe see what was happening so I did that when I got home and I saw that I you know I volunteered for Festival 21 which was this incredible um event that was all things sustainability and about 3,000 people came to the event so I thought people are interested um, they want to make a change. But what I noticed was after the event, there wasn't really many platforms in that people could action that in their daily lives. And so it's all good and well having these incredible events, but then what do you do after that? And it is can be a little bit intimidating to make change and on your own and how do you do that in your daily life? And um, so it kind of brought me to what my next venture is going to be that is going to probably see me through for a, for a long, long time. Um, and it's really just, you know, how do we reconnect people with food again? And I think that due to, you know, social media and everything like that, that gluttony was kind of driving what we eat. And I think that now, and like I said before, I think this um, COVID time has really made people reconsider their food choices and and understand the power of their choices and also the preparation that goes into it. Um, and that so this new platform um, of of mine is going to make change more accessible and more approachable, so that we can 
come together with food and that be the first thing that helps us make the change. But once we have that um, established connection with the food, then we can dive into thinking more deeply about connection with environment, economy, immigration, education, community, culture, families, uh, gender, race, um, identity, and everything kind of follows from there. Like I said before too, you know, this is quite a um, evolution. And so if we can get on the right track and we can close that loop, it's it, there's so many benefits. So, um, yeah, I think it's about putting um, the why back into business and not just the what and having a bit more depth and hopefully, um, you know, give people a bit of purpose along the way and ultimately bring people lots of joy through, through the food that they're eating. That sense of purpose and joy and connection with food that you're uh, hoping to bring with a, with a new project in the not-too-distant future. Um, I'm wondering, are you cooking differently because of the year that you've had and the way that you're seeing food in a new light? Yeah, definitely. I think I was on the path, um, but I was. I have a much deeper understanding now of um, the true power that the you know different nutritional value in foods can bring, and I think it goes deeper in the sense of um, uh, you know not. I I have always eaten seasonally, but not been deeply connected to it and I think when we eat deeply seasonally it is so nourishing for our bodies because that's what we're meant to be eating at that time and that's what our you know that our makeup is built on so there's so much more than just eating locally um, for reducing food miles it's actually what our biome is made up of and so the more we eat with what's around us, the more we can re- keep regenerating our health. So I think that's, um, yeah, had a huge part to play in it. And, and also, you know, it's not to say that this food can't be delicious. I think there's a stigma around eating for your health that you're just eating a bland bowl of undressed salad. Um, but when you do eat seasonally you're eating food at its peak and it's full of flavor and that is just so exciting to me um and that I think once people start to consider oh you know it's winter there's more root vegetables here and that's why they're on menus and that's why they're so delicious that you kind of crave that food at that time too um so yeah, I think that it's um, going to hopefully change people's attitudes and values around food, um, but do it like in a really fun way and a really enjoyable way and that it will yeah bring us all together a little bit closer, which I think we've seen in the pandemic too, that that strong sense of community um, needs to really be instilled. Well, Frankie, you're bloody inspiring and I can't wait to see what this new project, this secret project um, is, and I'm sure it'll come to light soon. (laughs) Top secret. Hopefully early 2021. (laughs) If anyone's got any spaces that I can sign, uh, let me know. (laughs) 
Well, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. You're a bloody legend. Uh, Please keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>